Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. We're in our last uh, week of our series. It's been a fantastic series, hasn't it been? Is the Bible a dangerous book? I hope that uh, it's really encouraged you to maybe dig into your Bible a bit more. One of our young adults last week uh, stopped me at the end of the gathering and just said something so profound. First of all, they said they love the series that we've been in, uh, talking about how to read our Bible. But he mentioned, um, actually, that he can feel the Spirit moving in our midst. And I was just so encouraged as a pastor to hear one of our young adults speaking about our community like that. What I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I want you to remember the last time that someone read to you. I want you to think back and try and remember the last time you didn't have to read to yourself. Maybe it was years ago. Maybe it was a grandparent who has now passed. Maybe it was a teacher. When is the last time that someone read a book aloud that you could paint the picture in your mind? Well, you can open your eyes. Reading Reading to people is something we don't do often anymore, do we? We'll read to certain people. As a teacher, I've read to my students. Um, As a parent, I've read to my young children. I've gathered them together. Each of my kids have gone through a phase when they're learning to read in which they don't want to read. And so you have to do a little bit of bargaining. You read this page, I'll read this page. And I get it because it's so much easier just to have someone read to you so you can picture the story or look at the pictures rather having to slug through the words and sound out those words. As a pastor, I've also sat in hospital rooms with people who are nearing the end of their life. And I've opened up the pages of scripture and there's something that happens in those moments when the richness of the familiar words that they have learned all their life, and as I read them aloud, it fills the room with strength and peace. I wonder, why don't we read to each other very much anymore? Because reading is a gift that we can give to each other. And even though it's not a common practice in today's day and age, for most of history, reading to others actually has been the norm in a community's rhythm. In fact, public readings would happen in palaces, they'd happen in temples, they'd happen on the streets. That is how anyone heard reading or heard scripture or heard anything that had ever been written down before living in the 1500s. So year 1500 and before, that's how people heard readings. See, public reading was actually how humanity accessed the Bible because scripture was individually inaccessible for most of history for two reasons. The first one was that the reality that the ability to read was actually a luxury that most people would never been able to afford. You see, to pick up a scroll of paper and read the words that had been inscribed on them was beyond their imagination. The vast majority of individuals throughout history, well, they were illiterate. It means they couldn't read. This meant that they had to find other ways of communicating 
to each other. Now, a few weeks ago, our staff took a one-day spiritual retreat, and we got away from the office and the day-to-day, what it takes to run a church, and we went down to a downtown church called St. Paul's on Bloor Street. And it was so good for our souls, actually, to just step out of this building and step into another holy building where hundreds of people have worshipped God for decades. And as we were standing in that auditorium and Natalie was leading us in worship and we were raising our voices, my eyes were actually drawn to around the room, these beautiful images that were painted on stained glasses around the room. Now, these weren't them. I didn't take pictures because we took our phones away. Nobody had phones for the entire day. But these are images of stained glass that you can see all throughout history. See, windows actually tell the stories of God's people throughout history. Do you know why they became so popular in churches years and years ago? One of the reasons was because of the accessibility of art. See, even though people couldn't read, they could understand art. And so through the beauty of a glass-stained window, everyone had the opportunity to learn the stories of the scriptures. See, art is understandable across languages, across generations, across cultures, and throughout history, it's actually helped to solve the problem of illiteracy. In fact, stained glass windows were actually referred to as the poor man's Bible at times because everyone could access them. Because the second reason that scripture was inaccessible individually throughout history, and certainly for those in biblical times, would have been because of expense. It was expensive. Simply put, it was expensive to own any type of scripture. And they wouldn't have owned a Bible like we hold today. I'm talking little pieces and portions of scripture. It was expensive. For most of history, scripture was actually handwritten. That means somebody took time to copy a piece of scripture onto a papyrus roll. And now this would take anywhere from one to three years to write down scripture. If we were to take our Bible today and write it down. And a copy of scripture in those days would cost something around the ballpark of ten dollars to $20,000 in our price today. So that made it impossible for anyone to own an individual piece of scripture. There was never enough copies to hand around. You see, it wasn't until for the year 1450 when the first Bible was actually mass-produced, somewhere around 1450. And at that time, it was 160 to 185 copies of scripture. I want you to parallel that, compare that to today when we have one million copies published every year. See, it's only been for the last 500 years that anybody has been able to own an individual Bible. And so because of the expense, because of the time it took to wrote them down, because of the illiteracy in the community, Communities would only have maybe one copy of scripture for an entire region. And so it, was ke- so it couldn't be kept in everybody's home, so people would have to travel to access it. That's such a drastic difference compared to the piles of Bibles that some of us have in our homes. And it's certainly a difference to the Bible that all of us carry 24-7 attached to our hands. See, when it comes to the Bible studying the Bible, we actually have something called convenience, don't we? It's at our fingertips. But they had something special too, and it was called 
community. Now, there's this beautiful passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, where God talks about this idea of community scripture reading, reading scripture together. And the Bible says this, take the commandments that I give to you, put them on your hearts, impress them on your children, repeat them again and again, talk about them when you're at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands, wear them on your foreheads as reminders, write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. You see, studying scripture became an important part of their normal rhythm as a community. One of the moments you can see this happening is in in Exodus 19. There we read that God has gathered his people and they've just come from Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. God has rescued them from a guy, through a guy called Moses. And they've been journeying for a few months and now they've been walking away from captivity in Egypt. They're walking away from it. God has rescued them. And God gathers his people around this really important, at the base of this important mountain called Mount Sinai. And there God instructs Moses to read some scripture to the people. And this scripture would have reminded them that they were God's people, that God was calling them to obedience, and he was going to be their God. And the Bible says that he gathered everybody, not just the adults, not just the important people, he gathered every generation, every gender around to listen to the reading of scripture. Well, it's not hard to notice some differences in the way they read scripture to the way we read scripture. First, we read that there's a difference in how they read the scriptures. See, we read as individuals, but they read as a community. See, scripture was read to them, not by them. Today, the majority, I'm guessing, of your Bible reading probably happens individually. We sit by ourselves, we open the Bible, we read it, we learn. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the only way we're experiencing scripture, then we're missing out on something that God said was good. This is why prioritizing gathering as a church community is so important for the follower of Jesus. Because studying the scriptures as a community is actually vital to the spiritual health of an individual. Well, secondly, we notice a difference in why they read the scriptures. See, we often read the scriptures to understand the stories, to understand the characters. They read the scriptures to understand the promises and the covenants. So that word covenant, it's an important word. It actually just means promise. It's when God makes an agreement with people. It's very similar to a marriage covenant. When two people enter a marriage together, they make a covenant. They agree to some things. That's exactly what God does in his word. See, God's promises and covenants throughout the Bible are a big deal to the readers of ancient scriptures because they reveal two things. The first thing that they do is they speak about who God is. They tell us more about God, more about who he is and what he does for us. The second thing, and where their eyes would have been attuned, is that they give a vision for what God is going to do in the future. Now, last week, Pastor Keith helped us understand that God made promises to individuals and to communities. Some of them were included in, some of them we were not included in. We learned from them. But God made some covenants, and he actually made five covenants that scholars would agree that really base the whole Bible, really wrap up what the Bible means. They're these. 
First, we have the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now, I bet if you look at those words, you could kind of figure out who was involved when God made those covenants. Well, to help us understand, I think we need to start at the beginning. So I thought we would do a little art lesson today. In the beginning, God tells us, or the Bible tells us, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world. Now, it's interesting to note that it wasn't just God there. Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit was there. The triune God, individual beings together at creation. So God creates the world, and he loves the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And so what God does is he says, let us, make Im- let us make humans in our own image. And so God creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them dominion over the Garden of Eden. He provides for them in every way. And they enjoy this beautiful relationship with God. They walk in the garden and they talk in the garden. But they're also given something called free will. This means that they can decide to obey God or they can decide to choose their own wishes. Well, we all know what happens. They decide that they're going to eat from the tree that God has asked them not to eat from. And when they do that, the Bible says that sin enters the world. Now, a punishment for sin is introduced, and that is death. It's separation from God and humanity. God had desired to be with humanity in the garden, but because of sin, he wasn't able to do that anymore. And so there was this punishment. They actually had to leave the garden and enter an exile season. Exile happens all the time in the Bible. It's just basically taking somebody from one's home, deporting them from one's home, removing them from one's home. But what happens is God gives a promise in this moment, and he says, it's not going to be like this forever. I am going to send someone who will crush the head of the enemy who has introduced sin into the world. But until then, sin is going to separate God from man. And so Adam and Eve must leave the garden, and so they do. And the Bible tells us that history goes on and people start to populate the earth. There's lots of people. The Bible says that the world becomes corrupt. Everyone is out choosing their own ways, choosing what is best for them. And the Bible says that God finds one righteous man in the world, and his name is Noah. And so God asks Noah to build an ark, and Noah obeys, which is interesting because hardly anyone obeys God throughout these scriptures. And so Noah obeys God, he builds an ark, and God uses that ark to keep Noah and his family safe when the floodwaters fill the earth and destroy the earth. And after that, after After the floodwaters have destroyed the earth, God gives Moses a promise. And it's the first covenant that we read in the Bible. And this is what he says. I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. God was speaking to humanity and saying, never again will this happen. I will protect you. This is not how I will deal with sin moving forward. See, in this covenant, nothing is required of humanity. God is going to do everything. And there's a sign that's attached to this covenant, and it's a rainbow. God sends a rainbow. He says, every time you see that sign, remember this covenant. Well, history continues. The world goes corrupt again. Everyone's choosing their own ways. And God finds this couple named Abraham and Sarah. And God loves the world, and he wants to redeem the world, even though everybody is choosing their own ways. So God says to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. 
And this is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. You will be a blessing to others. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, a bit is asked of humanity in this covenant, if you were to read the whole thing, and God is asking for obedience. He is going to make them a people. They're going to be his treasured people, but he is going to ask them to be his people and obey him. But regardless, whatever happens, God is still going to keep up his end of the bargain. Now, there is a sign that's attached to this covenant, and it's actually circumcision. God asks the Israelite people to be circumcised to to note that they are God's people. And this is actually the beginning of God's chosen family, who he calls Israel, or the Israelites. And so the Israelites, they continue, and sometimes they obey God, and sometimes they disobey God. And they find themselves at one point under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. And they're praying for a rescuer. God, would you rescue us? And Pharaoh is nervous that the Israelites are going to overtake the Egyptian people. So he makes this law that all Hebrew babies, all Israelite babies, will need to be murdered so that they can't raise up and become men. And there's this baby born to an Israelite woman. His name is Moses. And God saves Moses' life. In fact, instead of having him murdered when he was a young infant, God takes him and places him in the palace to be raised in the Pharaoh's home amongst the princes. And years later, after Moses has grown from a boy to a man, God takes Moses and has him rescue the people of Israel so that they can leave Egypt's rule. And they go to the Mount Sinai, like we talked about earlier, and God gives another promise to them. And this is the promise, the Mosaic covenant that God gives to Moses. He says, now if you will obey me, and if you'll keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure. From among all the people on the earth, you will be my holy nation. Again, obedience is asked of the people of Israel, but regardless, God is going to do this. But he says he's going to bless them for their obedience and he's going to curse them for their disobedience. And then God continues to raise up strong individuals throughout the course of history. People like Joshua, leaders like Deborah and Ruth. And finally, a guy named David, who's a little shepherd boy who loves God with all his heart. We know David. David eventually becomes King David, who also loves God with his whole heart, but also loves to chase sin. And because of that, he brings a lot of destruction and hurt and pain to God's people. But regardless of that, God still continues to love his people, and he gives a covenant through David, and he says, I will raise up one of your descendants, David, and I will make his kingdom strong. I will secure his rule on the throne forever. Now, things are again asked of humanity. They're asked for obedience, but regardless, God is going to do this. He is going to give an eternal crown, an eternal king to the Israelites, to the people. It's going to come from David's line, and God is going to use this person to redeem the world. And then a a lot of things happen. Lots of seasons of exile happen. People find, the Israelite people find themselves in exile in Babylon, and God raises up leaders to help them. Leaders like Queen Esther, who God uses to save the people of Israel. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, finally Jeremiah. And it's then that God makes another covenant. And this covenant is different than all the other covenants. It's called the new covenant. And this is what God says. I will make a new covenant. This covenant will not be like the ones that I made with your ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. In this new covenant... I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. You see, this new covenant is going to be different than the four covenants. It's going to be different. It's going to be internal. Something is going to happen inside people, not just external. External is obedience. External is acting like God's people. God is saying something is going to happen inside of my people that's going to change them. It's going to change their hearts, not just their behaviors. It's going to bring a final and complete forgiveness of sins that none of the other covenants could do. It's going to be the final covenant. And nothing is asked of humanity because God is going to do it. Now, my girls love to make bracelets. They'll sit around for hours. They'll bead all sorts of bracelets, all sorts of beads. They have favorite beads. Every cupboard that I open, there seems to be beads, sparkle beads, and beads with letters on them, and beads that have fallen off of other bracelets or necklaces that they want to save and remake beads. They love beads. And you know why? Because beads are what catches your attention, aren't they? They're colorful. Take these beads, for example. If I were to hold this up, it's such a beautiful piece of art. If I were to hold this up, ask you what you see, I guarantee you would probably say beads because beads are what catches your attention. But you know what? They're not the most important thing about a bracelet. I've found that the most important thing about bracelet making with my kids is actually the string that you choose to use because the string actually holds it all together. And the same is true with scriptures. These beads actually represent the stories of the scripture, the characters, the things that God did for them. But they're each valuable on their own. But when they're strung together by a string, they become a piece of art that tells a much larger, cohesive story. And the thing that threads them all together is the string. It weaves them together, it anchors them to each other to create one large story. And that is actually through the covenants the story of Jesus. And so as the early readers or the early listeners of scripture were hearing the stories as they sat together, they weren't listening to stories about humans. They were listening to the covenant promises. They were listening to a story about a God who despite humanity's disobedience over and over, continued to fulfill his covenants and rescue his people. You see, long before people carried a Bible in their hands. God's people carried a promise in their hearts. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. See, when Jesus came, he was from the line of Abraham. He was like Moses in the fact that he rescued his people, not from an earthly death, but from an eternal death and separation from the Father. Jesus was the perfect Israelite who followed perfectly every law that God had ever gave. He was from the royal blood of David. His death and resurrection actually broke the problem and the curse of sin, which fulfilled the promise that God had made in the garden. Jesus is the one that strings it all together. He's the complete fulfillment of every covenant and the new covenant. And so how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? The Old Testament people, people who lived in the old covenants before Jesus did the work on the cross, you know what they did? How they responded to it? They anchored themselves to scripture. Why? Because the old covenants identified that a future Messiah was coming. And the the scriptures that they had been given actually gave them a way to be in right standing 
with God. They could follow his instructions. They could obey him as a response to the instructions that he had given. But you and I, we are not old covenant people. We are new covenant people. We live in a time after Jesus died on the cross. We live under a new promise. We live under the promise that Jesus' death on the cross actually fixed the problem of sin forever. We can have relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. There is going to come a day when we will spend eternity with Jesus if we are followers of Jesus. And we no longer need a rescuer because Jesus has already come to this world and he has already rescued us. He has already restored our relationship with the Father. And so as new covenant people, what can we anchor our lives to? They anchored their lives to scripture. What do we anchor our lives to? Well, we anchor our lives to the one who scriptures point to. We anchor our lives to the one who fulfilled every covenant and the new covenant. And in doing so, we anchor our lives to the string that weaves and connects and anchors the whole story together. As new covenant followers of Jesus, we anchor our lives to Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, if we're going to anchor our lives to Jesus, three things need to change about our lives. The first is this. It should change the way that we read scripture. See, we need to put on what I like to call Jesus glasses. And Jesus glasses are kind of like those 3D glasses when you go to the movies and you put them on and all of a sudden everything jumps out at the screen to you. That's kind of what Jesus glasses are like. When we're reading the Old Testament passages in today's day and age, we need to pay attention to the whole story. We really want to pay attention to the covenants that God is weaving through the story, those themes of love, how God loves the world, how he calls his people to obey, how there's a problem of sin, how God rescues them, how God says it's not going to be like this forever. I am going to send a rescuer. I'll send you a king. That's what we want to pay attention to when we're reading the Old Testament. And when we're reading the New Testament, what we want to do is we actually want to pay attention to Jesus. Our eyes need to be attuned to him. This is the encouraging part. We now have a complete guidebook in the Bible that tells us how we should live our life. But we also have a living example in the person of Jesus. See, he came to show us how to live life, how to obey, how to lay down our lives, how to serve other people, how to honor the Father, how to live with those who are around us. And so as we read the New Testament, we really want to study the life of Jesus and the words that he said and his followers and how they obeyed the Father, which leads us to the second thing that needs to change if we're going to anchor our lives to Jesus. It should change the way that we see people. We need to train ourselves to see people how Jesus saw them. I want you to think about the person who grates on you. Maybe it's just me. Maybe none of you have anybody in your life like that. Think of the person that grates on you, the person who annoys you, the person who just rubs you the wrong way. You know that person? That's the person God wants you to love. Those people. See, it's easy to love people who are just like us. Those who think the same as me, those who talk the same as me, those who look the same as me, those who fit all the molds that I fit into, those who check the boxes that I would check. But Jesus pushes past those boundaries. He steps over the invisible lines 
of our society and into the corners that everyone else seemed to avoid. You know why? Because Jesus came for broken people. You and me. See, Jesus made lists of who was included, not who was excluded. He showed radical love when he continually invited the ostracized of society to come into relationship with him. Tax collectors, thieves, loud, obnoxious children, adulterers, murderers, those society had deemed unclean. See, Jesus lifted them up instead of locking them out. He reached down. He pulled them up. He used his influence to pave ways for them. Think about the Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus. Jesus took people that were at the bottom of society's barrel and he raised them up and he gave them a seat at the table. Jesus served instead of lording his authority over everyone. If anyone had the authority, Jesus had it, but instead he served. Beautiful example of this is when he washes his disciples' feet knowing that they will betray him. He was humble, he was gentle, he was forgiving. I want to caution you that if you're ever reading a piece of scripture or someone is teaching a piece of scripture and it doesn't sound like that Jesus, it doesn't feel like Jesus, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it probably isn't Jesus. They're probably reading it or you're probably reading it wrong. Which leads us to the final thing that we need to anchor our lives to. What should change when we anchor our lives to Jesus? It should change the way that we do life. Did you notice that those covenants, they weren't for individuals? They were for the community. That's significant because God has designed humanity to need each other. It is not good for human beings to be alone. Community matters. Now, at the beginning of the year, Pastor Jonathan gave us this challenge that we should prioritize the gatherings of One Church Geo. Why is that? Well, there is something beautiful and incredibly healthy about gathering together to hear from God corporately. It doesn't replace the time that you spend individually with him, learning and growing and building relationship with him. But there is something missing if your faith is too individualistic. If no one's ever invited into your faith journey, there's something missing with that. See, we're a church family. And families, we do life together, whether we like to or not. That's why we gather together each week. And I'm so thankful for so many opportunities that we can do that. You know, I love watching the live stream on Sunday mornings. I love jumping on. I love interacting with the people on there because there is so much community that is happening. As we read the scriptures together, they're talking about it. They're adding their comments and their thoughts. Something so enriching about reading the scripture together. I love when somebody shares a need and people jump in to encourage and to support and to pray. That's what community is. I love being in this room together. I love being here on Sunday mornings because we do community together. Whether it's before or after the gathering, whether it's through prayer or just laughing in the cafe, there's a great importance in coming together and acting like the community. Groups is also a great way to practice community in a church family because in groups, what you can do is you can actually dig through the scriptures together. You can talk about them. You can add your life experiences. You can enrich the faith journey of other people around you. You know what? We need you. I can tell you this. The next generation that's packed out in that section of the church, they need you. We need you. 
Community matters because we know this, our faith is strengthened and becomes more vibrant when it's practiced not just in prayer closets, but also within faith communities. And finally, obedience matters. Obedience matters. Not only did Jesus fulfill every covenant that had ever been given to humanity, he also fulfilled every law and instruction that God had ever gave. You know, he modeled for us what an obedient life looks like, always honoring his father with every action that he did here on the earth. Pastor Jonathan, you said it like this a couple weeks ago. As new covenant people, relationship with God actually requires more of us, more obedience to God, more dependency on him, more love for his world. One of the most beautiful examples I can think of when I think of obedience matters is when Jesus chose to be baptized in water. See, baptism in water is very significant because it declares to the world that you are a follower of Jesus. And God actually instructs his followers to be baptized in water. Now, when Jesus decided to be baptized in water, it really wouldn't make sense for him to go get baptized in water, declaring that he was a follower of himself. Rather, by being baptized in water, Jesus was modeling for us what it means to obey the Father. See, when God asks us to do something, we do it out of obedience, and we also do it out of love. Jesus loved the Father. The Father commanded that you should be baptized, and so Jesus was baptized. As we close this morning and this series, I thought a beautiful way would be to celebrate some individuals in our church family who have taken a step of obedience and chosen to be baptized in water. And as we watch this video, I want you to notice the words that they use to explain why they are choosing to be baptized. See, these individuals are not declaring allegiance to the law. They're not declaring allegiance to a covenant or even to scripture. They are declaring allegiance to a king who fulfilled every promise that he ever made. Because as followers of Jesus, we anchor our lives to him. Now, just before we do that, though, I want to pray. I want to take a moment to pray for those who might want to respond to God today. See, just as he always has, God always gives us a free choice. We get to decide, just like Adam and Eve and everyone that has lived since, we get to decide if we want to grab hold of the promises that God has made to humanity and the work that he did for us on the cross. So maybe today is the day that you might want to decide to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you want to start this relationship with him that I'm talking about. For others, it might mean recognizing that as a follower of Jesus, things in my life need to start changing. Maybe you need God to change the way that you see people. Maybe you need him to change the way that you approach life. Maybe you need him to change the way that you obey him. That's you. I'm going to invite everyone to close their eyes. I'm going to say a simple prayer. If you'd identify with one of those, I'm just going to invite you to join me in prayer. God, today we recognize that we are imperfect and we need your help. God, I thank you for coming to this world. Thank you for fulfilling every promise that you ever made in scripture. Thank you for dying on a cross, God, so that we can have relationship with you. Today we admit that we have fallen short. God, I've fallen short. There are areas in my life where I've chosen my way over yours. Would you help me 
Help me to grow to become more like you in the ways that I approach people, in the ways that I approach obedience, God, in the ways that I engage with my community. God, thank you for your promises that even when I don't keep up my end of the deal, you always keep up yours. And so today I choose to anchor my life to you. Would you help me to follow your example, God, so that the world might see you through me? Amen. Baptism for me, it means publicly declaring that I'm no more the old person that they know and I'm a new person in God. I made the choice to follow him and involve him in my life. I want to follow in his footsteps. I want to tell God in front of the world that I love him and devote myself to him. My life has changed drastically. I didn't know that God loved me as much as he did. And when you have Jesus, you can't lose. It really told me what kind of love and direction that I was missing in my life. I wanted to be able to know that like, I could count on God and I didn't want to fall away if things got difficult because I said that I was giving my life to God. If I want to be someone that's, you know, giving my all to everyone else, Jesus is someone I should look towards to because no matter what, he's going to do the same thing. I'm deciding to be baptized and I think that you should also try it. To show my children that that God is important and He should be and is my number one. So I'm just kind of hoping that I can help others as well as keep growing in my own faith. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.